Chapter Seven of Find the Woman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Find the Woman by Gillette Burgess. Chapter Seven. The Caxton Dining Room. How Fenton met Belcharmion a second time. Was entertained by two professional beauties. Became a hero and secured his carfare. John Fenton did not forbear casting a glance at himself in the narrow mirror as he descended the elevator. The grey tweed suit fitted him miraculously, and it bore the cut of a good tailor. The change of costume excited him deliciously. He felt ready now for a new adventure, ready to play a courageous part. He fingered the fine soft wool with surreptitious delight. He set the brown derby hat at a careless angle on the back of his head. He flattered himself that he knew how to wear clothes, and was not averse to showing himself in this spotless, well-pressed costume in the lobby of the hotel. Mrs. Elkhurst's narrative had steadied him, but he was still young and full of the joy of life. The touch of vanity in him only gave him a trace of boyishness. He plunged into the aromatic maze of feathers, silks, and furs that thronged the lobby. With his head erect, he was as good as anybody. He wove jauntily in and out between the ladies and gentlemen in evening dress that crowded the corridors, caught glimpses of merry diners, kindled to the strains of an orchestra, drinking in the atmosphere of wealth and pleasure. Then round a corner came Belcharmion. It was as sudden as that. She gave him a quick look and paused. He got as an impression of her only two soft hazel eyes glancing humorously at him, and the smooth shadows of black lynx furs. He came to a stop to gaze at her, and she suddenly turned. I beg pardon, she said, but aren't you? Then she blushed vividly. Oh, I beg your pardon, she added hastily. I thought you were someone else. She cast down her eyes, confused, and walked hurriedly away. John Fenton turned and stared after her, his heart beating. What new mystery was this that brought his dream girl to him, face to face, that made her pause, speak only to hasten away? For a moment he was inclined to start after her, but already she was lost in the crowd. He had a second time let his opportunity slip away from him. Who was she? For whom had she taken him? What had she wished to say? Belle Charmian. Too much excited by the encounter to enjoy the scene any longer, he went out the revolving door and turned west at Fifty-Ninth Street toward Columbus Circle, making for the subway. He was halfway across Seventh Avenue before his mind, wandering from Belcharmian for an instant, lit upon the subject of car fare. Eagerly he went through the pockets of the grey tweed suit. Not a dime, nickel, or penny did he find. Nothing save a quill toothpick and a leaf from the wrapper of a wheeling stogie. He had dallied too long at the plaza. Already the lady of the ruby necklace must have left for the train to Philadelphia. From Fifty-Ninth Street to Wall Street is five hard, weary miles. To walk it would take an hour and a half at least. If he could not think of some way to raise at least five cents, his adventure would conclude in nothing more exciting than a midnight tramp to a lonely bed, there to vanish in misty dreams of what might have been. He turned down Seventh Avenue, therefore, his wits working at the problem. 
keeping his eyes open the while for any possible answer to it which might casually approach him but seventh avenue was almost free of wayfarers a policeman regarded him with an icy eye he passed a flushed youth saying good-bye to a pretty girl with an eighty-five-dollar hat he passed a small horde of waiting conductors and motormen at the car barns in none of these did he find the answer to his riddle past the blinking electric signs heralding the glad fact that h and l corsets make the female form divine past theatres just ready to belch forth their victims john fenton betweeded and anxious strolled he was thinking thinking not of belcharmion or mrs elkhurst now not of the octoroon or the liars but of the one elusive nickel he needed for carfare to carry him further on this arabian night's entertainment he came to the hotel caxton and paused here he was at the centre of new york's night-life the half-way station of gay rounders one of the lighthouses of long acre square one of the many palaces of oysters lobsters and champagne fenton was a sober enough youth he knew this aspect of the metropolis mainly through the newspapers but he was stimulated by feeling that he was now in the locus of lively things in a minute a rush of theatre-goers was upon him and he was swept along hardly knowing why he entered the caxton and stood in the lobby to devise some plan he wondered how confidence men worked their games he knew that in this part of the city clever wits were as good as ready money how could he work it but there was little need for fenton's solicitude fate had him in hand that night and there in the lobby of the hotel two lovely ladies had already marked him for their own they might have posed as night and day so brilliantly were they contrasted one was a sparkling brunette black of hair and eye red of cheek vivacious radiant most gorgeously alive the other was a super blonde her hair sportive in ringlets charmingly careless was shaded from gold to silver her eyes were violets she was the sunny languorous type passive yet more compelling than she of the dark darting eye fenton at his first glance at her knew that hundreds of men must have been inflamed by her beauty in it there was little subtlety it was a highwayman beauty it cried hands up the other the brunette was however something more than pretty one looked twice and found something new to admire her attraction had depths one longed to penetrate they stood these two attired in furs and feathers silks and lace waiting by the door of the dining-room and looked at him fenton felt something extraordinary in their glance it was suspiciously friendly when they smiled and nodded at him he felt uncomfortable their beauty was something too dangerous and he walked uneasily away in a moment however a hall-boy overtook him fenton was informed that the two ladies wished to speak with him so amazed at the honour and wondering what new trick was now to be turned he walked over to them and lifted the brown derby the brunette's black eyes sparkled and she showed her pretty teeth as she held out a white-gloved hand say kid you ain't going to cut an old friend are you don't do anything like that 
Fenton mumbled a kind of blurred apology. Why, I believe you don't remember me, she complained. The blonde's lip curled in a faint smile. She shrugged her fur-clad shoulders and looked away. Where was it I saw you? said Fenton, puzzled, fishing for some hint that would give him his cue. The brunette laughed merrily. The last time I see you, you was hanging to the ropes when Jack Ketchell was given the decision. No wonder you forgot me. The blonde looked dreamily off toward the theater office desk. She seemed to be in a world of her own. Fenton realized that the mistake was sincere. He had evidently been taken for some pugilist with whom the brunette had had a passing acquaintance. The question was, who was he? He searched his memory for the name of Jack Ketchell's unfortunate opponent. No answer. The only knowledge Fenton had of current fistic events was derived from the smart talk of a precocious office boy at the drafting room. Still, any port was good in a storm, and Fenton thought he might turn the mistake to his advantage in some way. Perhaps these two beauties would pilot him out of his straits. He grinned his best, therefore, and shifted his feet. So you was at the fight, he asked. Then it occurred to him that the part of pugilist needed more color. He emulated the tough office boy and his talk. Say, he said, getting into the swing of it, say, was you wise to the fact that I fit them last three rounds with a broke thumb? Look at there. He held out his right hand and wiggled the thumb trickily. The brunette felt of it daintily. What you expect I could do with a pin like that? he asked triumphantly. I thought you was a little off your feed, the brunette said. I was overtrained. Too fine, said Fenton. Next time I'll get him, and I'll get him good. Then, hoping to discover his name by the ruse, he asked, Say, give me a knockdown to your friend, Miss Peach Alamelba. The blonde so designated turned her head and seemed to approach slowly from miles away. Her smile was but a shadow, as she looked at him, as if for the first time conscious of his presence. Miss Diamond, said the brunette, shake hands with Wack Harrison, ex-middleweight champion of the U.S. She turned to Fenton. Is that right, Wack? Fenton was thus much relieved. He at least knew his name. How long he could maintain the impersonation was another matter. It was a parlous roll. The blonde, named Diamond, extended her fingers. Fenton thought it not out of character to squeeze them with a nutcracker grip. It might at least bring the yellow-haired girl to life. It did. Gee, she exclaimed, shaking her hand in pain. You must think you're shaking with Kilgore before a fight. That ain't no way to shake hands with a lady. She tossed up her head in scorn. That's right, said Fenton. But you see, when I do make connections with a wonder-worker like you, it's hard work breaking away from the clinch. I guessed you hypnotized me for fair. I ain't used to gold queens much. Sort of takes my breath away, and I act foolish. The blonde could not help smiling, and the ice was broken. Fenton began to wonder what the brunette's name was, and how to find out, when Miss Diamond herself supplied the information. She elevated her golden eyebrows and said, Say, Millie, how about the eats? I'm all in. That's right, said the brunette. Whack! We was just going in to dissect a lobster 
and do a little drown in the fizz. Won't you be among them present? Her black eyes tore through him. Fenton was conscious that everyone in the hotel lobby was staring at them. Sure thing, he said, and then added commandingly, that is, if you eat on me. Nothing like that in my family, said Millie gaily. I just drew my alimony. I'm just padded with greenbacks. None of that suffragette stuff, said Fenton sternly, keenly conscious that he could not pay for a postage stamp. Don't you get gay, boyo. Don't you know I invited you? Be good now and come on in. Well, we'll settle it later, said Fenton, and threw all responsibility to the winds, leading the way to a table. He threw out his chest and his elbows as he walked, strutting as nearly like the pictures he had seen in Puck as he could do it. Oh, if he had only listened more carefully to that office boy. As they sat down, everyone in the restaurant turned to look at the party. Was it on account of the miraculous blonde? She would have attracted attention in a herd of angels. Was it on account of the saucily pretty brunette, the dainty devil in petticoats with her flashing eyes? No, Fenton realized with a sudden pang of alarm that they had turned to stare at Wack Harrison, the ex-welterweight champion of America. The responsibility of his role almost overcame him. If he were to act the pugilist there might be deeds as well as words required who could tell what turn of the wheel might force him to make good with his fists such hero-worship as that with which the two ladies flattered him might be a bit too dangerous he had never had a real out-and-out fight in his life lo he had swaggered into the hotel full of cheek and confidence already the admiration he had so vicariously received had made him three parts a coward. Would he have to make his exit in an ambulance? Say, whack, said Millie, leaning to him confidentially. Do you know why I wanted to see you so bad? I'll put you wise. There's a fresh little crab out there in the lobby that's been getting too gay with us girls altogether. Do you mind going out there a minute and stroking him just one jab for luck? Fenton's stomach flattened with fear. Miss Diamond turned her violet eyes upon him. He could scarcely bear to look at her. Hand him one for me, Mr. Harrison, she said dreamily, and smiled a bewitching smile. I won't have no appetite till I know he's good and lame. Who is he? Fenton inquired, trying to keep his knees from knocking together. That's him now, Millie pointed to a man standing in the narrow doorway. He had an evil face. Fenton estimated his weight at over two hundred pounds. It's Billy Presto, you know, Whack, Lightning O'Donnell's sparring partner. Lord, you can eat him up. Don't be long. And she sped him to his doom with a flashing smile. Fenton rose and walked out, trembling all over. His only coherent idea was to make a quick escape. The cloakroom boy had taken his hat, but he would forgo that. He would escape out the side entrance. He had indeed already hurriedly started that way when Mr. Presto approached him and slapped a heavy hand upon his shoulder. Hello, Whack, he said. How goes it? Have a cigar. Fenton's wits buzzed. Say, I was just looking for you, Presto, he said. They was a couple of swell skirts round here looking for you a half an hour ago. Oh, is that so? Who were they? Presto was immediately intrigued. In a limousine car they were. 
a little one and a bigger one nectarines fenton improvised crazy to find you but wouldn't tell their names said if i see you to say they'd wait for you at the cafe martin important fenton gazed with a fine air of candor at billy presto but ready to jump away from his fist at the first sign of incredulity the scheme worked thanks old man bye-bye i'll skip right down there and mr presto had gone fenton returned to the dining-room a little faint and wobbly well i threw a good scare into him he explained as he sat down i guess he won't try to do no more goo-goo work round here for one while what do you want to eat milly oh we've ordered milly looked at him admiringly say you're a whiz she commented now if that guy over at that table there don't try any cute business on me we can have supper where is he fenton demanded now milly we don't want no fuss here said miss diamond milly subsided but was pleased fenton's appetite was gone with every fond look his companions lavished upon him he became more craven well he must at least put on a front he cudgelled his brain for memories of the office-boy's talk when are you going to meet jake kilgore again milly asked him next month i guess say you leave it to me this time i'm going to train on nitric acid and iron filings and live rats take it from me girl i'll make him think of home and mother before the first round is over when i unhook my right and connect with his dial he'll act like a ferry-boat with a boy captain in a smoky fog say did you ever see a mogul locomotive run over a pin that's me and kilgore i'm the choo-choo see why he'll be a royal stuart plaid all over when i finish at this moment the waiter pouring milly's champagne hit the chair with his elbow and the wine spilled in milly's lap she gave a cry of anger and began to mop her skirt with her napkin fenton turned pale must he kill the waiter he jumped up and looked wildly about him for an escape miss diamond put a fairy hand upon his arm oh don't make a fuss mr harrison she besought i'll smash him into a biscuit tortoni he roared milly laughed oh whack really it was my fault don't hurt him fenton heaved a sigh of relief sat down glowering and the waiter made bold to approach and tender his apologetic services it was a narrow escape if i'd unloosed that lariat wallop of mine said fenton deliberately glowering at the unfortunate waiter i'd have cut his head off just like slicing an apple but good lord what's the use of mutilating a swede it would muss me all up he turned modestly to his oysters my but you're savage murmured the blonde and she looked at him in a dreamy rhapsody that made fenton turn his eyes away for fear of being hypnotized yes she was too beautiful she made him feel weak a dozen admiring sentences rose to his lips but he knew so well she had heard them all before that he would not speak them he turned to milly better able to compete with her sprightly smile it stimulated him she plied him with questions she was curious as to everything connected with his supposititious profession between her catechism and miss diamond's ravishing smiles fenton found it hard to keep his head his fictions grew wilder he narrated impossible battles in the squared ring he professed to know every one they mentioned and indulged in fanciful flights of biography 
but all the while he was waiting for his bluff to be called his exposure was momentarily imminent he was aroused from these forebodings by the sight of a colossal man standing in the doorway looking over the throng he was a human mastodon with a sour and ugly look that made fenton's flesh creep on his bones the man's face was battered and crooked he had the jaw of a bulldog to fenton's horror he looked over at the ladies and scowled meaningly my god said milly it's jim what'll we do he'll be terrible jealous oh whack you will protect me won't you she laid her hand on fenton's with a quick convulsive grasp even miss diamond awakened from her dreamy pose he'll make a fuss sure oh mr harrison don't hit him we'd better get away quick her eyes shot blue sparks now she was wide awake and without coquetry fenton trembled he half arose to fly but was held by milly's eager hand the man stalked sullenly over to the table see here what the devil does this mean milly i thought you was a-goin to eat with me his voice thundered all eyes in the room turned to him milly was too frightened to speak so for that matter was fenton who is this little shrimp anyway the stranger demanded say young fellow you better light out before i kick you out fenton jumped up and looked about ready to dodge the first blow what's that you called me he demanded with what belligerency he could muster his heart was in his mouth for god's sake whack don't hit him don't make a scene it was the violet-eyed blonde who screamed hit me the big man ejaculated while i'll make mashed potatoes of him in three minutes if he don't get out of here milly shrieked don't you touch him jim he'll kill you if he turns himself loose why it's whack harrison you fool the big man stared at that minute a waiter came by with an armful of dishes looking the other way smash he charged full tilt into fenton's back fenton fell forward toward jim and put out his hands to save himself at the same instant a fat german with a napkin tucked into his collar who was stolidly cutting a dill pickle at the next table punctured the rind and the juice gushed forth the two accidents were exactly timed fenton's outstretched hands fell hard on the big man's chest and a stream of brine hit jim in the right eye he stumbled fell backward wildly waving his hands all over the room spectators shouted and rose to their feet to witness the fray the head waiter came running up fenton too had fallen and fallen upon his prostrate foe his companions mingled their shrieks with those of the crowd don't let him get at him he'll murder him the girls entreated if he gets mad he'll beat him to pieces he's whack harrison fenton hardly knew what had happened before three waiters pulled him off jim's supine body they raised him respectfully however anxiously protecting themselves from his rage the head waiter came up to him and tried to calm fenton down apologized promised no further annoyance protested his own regrets and then majestically ordered the stranger to be removed from the room angry as a trapped gorilla shouting out hideous oaths jim struggled against some seven or eight waiters and guests the war raged all the way to the door of the dining-room where the porters took a hand there the house detective had already telephoned for the police 
the lobby was filled with strugglers and profanity till the law arrived and two stalwart officers hustled the unfortunate man into the patrol wagon then the guests who had left their tables to watch the riot returned gossiping and laughing to the cafe men stared at fenton in awe ladies gazed at him and talked under their breaths it took some time for the confusion to simmer down and order to be restored all this while fenton sat proudly staring at vacancy with a forced smile upon his lips the talk around him buzzed of uppercuts and hooks punches wallops and knockouts the blonde timidly put the question that was agitating the whole room what was that punch you gave him mr harrison she inquired with the love-light in her melting violet eyes fenton considered it at leisure oh that smash that was a new one my own invention i call it the straight-arm double-dill jab it's got the corkscrew to the solar plexus beaten to a whisper you work it like this and fenton illustrated a complicated evolution with his left fist directed against a champagne bottle what are you doing now fenton asked as the supper proceeded so far he knew little of his companions and if he was to get help from them he must make haste the girl in red said milly ain't you been to see the show yet fenton confessed his ignorance of the play i'm wearing twelve thousand dollars worth of costumes said miss diamond four changes you ought to come it was then fenton disclosed the full depths of his innocence what part do you play he asked the ladies screamed with mirth play a part that's good say whack do we look foolish enough to spend our time learning lines with our shape what's the use of being a perfect thirty-six forget it you can always get girls to work for a living we're clothes horses why kid do you really think we could keep motor-cars and wear genuine blue fox if we had to bark mew and bray when a dub stage manager told us not on your mezzotint oh said fenton edified then you're showgirls professional beauties murmured miss diamond we're what men buy opera-glasses for but i had no idea showgirls got such good salaries the girls looked at each other shook their heads and then smiled at their interlocutor milly patted fenton's hand say kid you may be all right with your ring tactics but you never ought to be caught thinking in public when they's ladies present eighteen a week is our regular pay the rest is perquisites oh i got a trade too ever travelled on the subway miss diamond added i'm the lady with after-dinner gumdrops on a three-sheet that's right also the p d slick overshoes and the oh i want some beer she yawned and tapped her red lips the while as if she were playing a tune i say milly did you read in the paper where janey davis had made a horrible punch in london sure she's starring what do you think of that why i knew her when she was an extra girl too she was a freak for fair did i ever tell you about her in mansfield miss diamond shook her head disinterestedly but as fenton politely professed a desire to hear milly took a final sip of champagne and began the story the girl who knew mansfield yes her real name was jane davis ain't that a scream for heaven's sake 
what s the use of going on the stage if you can t beat the label you had when you lived back in Baraboo? When I asked her about it, she only said, Why, that s my mother s name, and I guess if it s good enough for her, it s good enough for me. Then she looked at me with her big, hungry brown eyes, like a little kid on the corner watching a hokey pokey cart. She certainly was a queer one, never had no use for men, and not much for women either at least not them in the company. She used to sit around in corners watching the rehearsals while the bunch was carrying on and having fun. She used to talk queer, too. Never was up to date at all. Couldn't jolly up for a cent. Remember how we used to guy her for saying not having had and were it not that? Why, she couldn't understand our slang half the time. Sort of country, you know. Talked like a reading book. That was when we was in the Sinfire Company. My name then was Gloria Moyle, and I was just out of the bunch in the chorus trying to get solid with the stage manager. Jane Davis was drawing twelve a week. She had one line in the third act. She lived with her mother in one room, way over on East 19th Street. Well, say, she was hard up all right. Believe me, she used to walk all over New York barefoot. Do you know what I mean? She had what looked like shoes, but they want nothing really but a pair of uppers. The soles were wore clear through, and so was her stockings. I give her an old pair of rubbers one day, and she wore em regular after that. The girls used to guy her about it something fierce. Hard up? You bet. Didn't I tell you her mother had rheumatic fever? That's right. The landlady put her out of the house once. She groaned so loud when she was took bad. Of course, it cost Jane about all she could hold out for doctors and medicines and all that. Twelve dollars don't go far. Nobody in the company ever thought Jane was anything more than a fool. You see, she was so queer, and she'd never make up to men or anything. She wasn't pretty, but, Lord, she could have grafted all the free eggs she wanted if she'd just thrown a grin or two round. Plenty of the boys would have staked her to an eat. But no, nothing doing with Janey. Strictly on the prim. She had straight black hair that she wore funny. Not a blessed rat in it. A freak style of her own. Say, it was a scream. She did have pretty hands, though. And that was a funny thing, too. She could almost talk with them. Her mouth was just like a baby's sort of trembly and changing all the time. Always different, you know how a kid's face works. No repose. All the same, when Janey Davis got mad, believe me, then she was a devil. She could just make the chills crawl up and down your back, but you'd never believe it to see her sitting in a corner reading a book. You could almost tell what the story was just by watching her face. Now what was I going to tell you? Oh yes, about Mansfield. Why, a gentleman friend of mine, Dusty McIntyre it was, him and me was pretty thick that year. He gave me a couple of seats for Mansfield at the New Amsterdam one day. He got em off one of the stage managers. You know how Mansfield used to carry around about twenty-seven different varieties of em. Of course, I naturally didn't go much on that highbrow stuff like Pier Gint and I was sore the pass wasn't for the follies of 1907. But Janey was in the dressing-room when I got a piece of a burnt match in my eye, and she took it out for me after everybody else wouldn't do it. 
and so I asked her, did she want to go? Say, you ought to seen that girl. She was as excited as if Rockefeller had asked her to get married. So we went. Believe me, I near went to sleep in the theater. The show didn't have no ginger in it. Slow. Well, you take it from me. If that girl had just come into town from southwestern Missouri, she couldn't have acted more like a fool. She didn't hardly speak only just twice in the whole show. In the first act, you know, where Peer Gint comes on like a fourteen-year-old boy and lays down on the stage and kicks up his heels, Janey turned round and looks at me with her big brown eyes, and she whispers, Who's that? I says, Why, that's Mansfield, you little jay. Oh, she says, I thought he was a man. Lord, how she stared. Then in a minute, what does she do but begin to cry? Can you beat it? There he was, as funny as a kitten with a catnip ball, doing kid stunts so you'd split laughing, and Janey blubbering away for fair. Didn't I tell you she was queer? I never got another word out of the girl till the last act. You know where they have that auction scene and Mansfield comes on as an old man. Then Janey asked me again, just like before, she says, Who's that? I says, ain't you got a program or what? That's Mansfield, of course. Who else would it be? Clyde Fitch? And then she begins to cry again, soft, to herself. I sat and watched the tears drip down her face like a leaky hot water bag. She certainly was a fool. Well, we blew into Rikers to have a pistache soda after the show, and I just asked her what she was crying at. She says, Oh, he made me see all sorts of things that want on the stage at all. I thought I was somewheres else, she says. What do you think of that? What's a theater for, anyway? It's to show the act the author wants showed, and that's all. Ain't that right? But I couldn't make Janey see it that way. Would you think a yap like her could ever act? Well, next noon I run down to her room to get her to put a touch on a hat I'd just bought. I'd paid eighteen dollars for it, but it wa'n't quite right. Janey had a way of pulling ribbons round so you'd swear a hat was just imported. Clever she was, too, in a way. Ought really to have been a milliner. Her mother was in bed as usual, groaning away something fierce, and Janey was writing on an old brown paper bag, ironed out flat. I offered to give her some paper, but no, she wouldn't never take nothing from nobody. I asked her what it was, and she looked up kind of queer, and she said she was writing a letter to Mr. Mansfield. Can you beat it? Mashed. And him, getting his thousands a week. What are you writing to him, I says. She smiled awful queer, and she says, I'm telling him something I'll bet nobody has ever told him before, she says. I know a lot of things about him nobody knows, she says. Well, that got me mad. Didn't she have a nerve? Nothing but an extra girl, practically, at twelve a week, and him a star. I was paralyzed. If you know all that, I says, it's a wonder you ain't starring yourself. And she says, there's another day coming, she says, and I'll have my chance yet. She made me sick. Just one line was all she had in the production. Why, she never even had her name on the program. Mine was in, with the butterflies and Patagonian peasants and the Mary Marys, three times in all. You may not believe it, but about a week after that, she come into our dressing room and says, 
See here, I want to show you something. What do you think? She sure had a photograph of Richard Mansfield, with his name and some writing on it, too. What is it, Latin, I says? No, says Janey, it's French. I asked her what did it say, and she smiled and said, You wouldn't understand, Moyle, but it's something like, Look inside. Well, I certainly didn't understand all right, nor I don't yet, and I doubt if she did. I suppose Mansfield only sent it to her just for a cod. Say, it was funny, though, when you come to think of it, want it? Why, Mansfield was a holy horror. Everybody knows that. Nobody could ever get along with him. Women or men, why, his people used to leave him every week. He used to fire about twenty every night, and then take em back. What in the world do you figure he sent Janey that photo for? It beats me. Anyway, Janey was tickled to death with it. You'd think it was a doll. She used to carry it round with her all the time. One time Floridora Billingsgate found it and drawed a mustache on it with grease paint, and say, wasn't Janey mad? She snatched up a pair of scissors and went at flow like a Rocky Mountain wildcat, and the girls had to pull her off. That was just before Janey was put into the cast. We never knew how she made that jump. Some said she had money left her and bought the part, but I know better. Janey never had a cent in them days. I expect she wasn't quite as country as she looked, after all, and worked the manager. She couldn't act, anyway. Lord, didn't I know her when she was an extra woman? The idea. I guess I know something about the stage. Why, Janey actually had an idea that it didn't matter where you put your feet or your hands. Now anybody who's ever been to a dramatic school knows when you put out your right hand, you have to put out your right foot, and a lot of rules like that. And Janey couldn't read a line right to save herself. It sounded just like ordinary talking. It wasn't acting at all. And she knew no more about how to use her eyebrows than a cat. Oh, she paid for her promotion some way, you bet. That's always the way. Talent ain't no use whatever compared to influence. The day she was given the part of Alfalfa in Sinfire, I came across her back near the property room. She had Mansfield's photo in her hand, and she was a-kissing it. Ain't that the limit? I was kind of mad to see a gawk like her put ahead, and I says to her, If you got to kiss him, why the devil don't you kiss him on the mouth? She just give me one scared look, and she says, Oh, Moyle, she says, he's married. What do you know about that? Didn't I tell you she was a fool? She made me sick. What, are you stuck on him, I says? She says, If it hadn't been for him... I'd never have been promoted. Now you couldn't make me believe he had anything to do with it. I ain't so easy as all that. So I asked her what she meant. She was half laughing and half crying, and sort of silly. She says, I've learned how to look inside, she said. Can you beat it? She was foolish, just naturally foolish. Hadn't never seen him off the stage. Well, it was about three weeks after that Janey's mother died. Janey was all broke up. Anybody'd expect she'd be glad to have it over with. Wouldn't you think it would have got on her nerves to have the old lady mewing like a tomcat every time her shoulder-blade ached? She sure was an awful bother. I didn't see Janey. A stagehand we called Violets told me. He had blue eyes and a broad grin. He must have been kind of stuck on her. 
He used to claim she could act. You know how those stagehands are. They think they know a lot. He had an awful nerve. But wait. He told me the funeral was going to be Sunday, but I'd just made a date with Dusty McIntyre to motor down to Luna Park, and so of course I couldn't go. At least I had no idea I could at the time. Dusty looked too good to me. So I just dropped Janie a postcard telling her I was sorry and all that, and if I could do anything, to let me know. That was on a Friday. After the matinee, next afternoon, Janie come round to see me, and she asked me would I lend her a quarter to pay for a telegram. Of course I told her I'd send it for her. I felt kind of sorry for the little mouse, and she handed it over. Oh, her mother was at a little cheap undertaker's over on the east side. Well, when I read that wire, I nearly had a fit. Who do you think it was to? Richard Mansfield. He was down at his country place in New London. It only said, Mother died yesterday, Jane Davis. Wasn't she the crazy thing? She'd just got one photo out of him, and on the strength of that, she'd gone to work and took him right into the family. Of course, I never sent it. I knew it wouldn't do at all. He'd have been wild. I told Violets about it, though, and he said it was a nervy thing to do. I've often wondered since if he didn't send it himself, though, after all. We started out on Sunday, Dusty and me, about ten o'clock in his panard. I had one of them two-toned violet auto veils and a yellow silk coat on. Just as we was halfway over the Williamsburg Bridge, something happened to the car, and Dusty got out. I looked back and I seen a funeral coming and I got awful nervous. You know it's bad luck to have one overtake you. But I looked round. First come an open barouche, just crammed with flowers. I give you my word, if they was one dollar's worth, they was five hundred. They was fairly spilling into the road. After that was the tackiest hearse I ever see. Then come one solitary hack that's all. Gee, it was the bummest funeral procession I ever seen. Just as the hack passed, I saw Janie through the window, with a man setting side of her. I couldn't catch his face. Then they went by, and Dusty fixed his machine, and got in. I told him about it, and I says to him, Dusty, you got to follow that funeral wherever they go. We can run down to Luna Park later. There's certainly something doing, when Jane Davis has a hackload of flowers for her mother's funeral, and I want to see who's putting up for it, so we run along easy behind em. I thought, of course, it would be the potter's field for hers, cause Janie hadn't got any relations at all, only her mother. But no, where did they go? But out to Greenwood Cemetery, and turned in up to a lot under a big elm tree. Of course, we couldn't take the car in, but we stopped where we could see who was there. First, a man got out of the hack with a silk hat on. I couldn't make him out at first. Then come Janie. Will you believe it? She didn't wear black. And it was her own mother's funeral, too. She had on the bum little blue suit she always wore. Wa'n't that disgraceful? She might have shown some respect, even if her mother had led her a life. Then the man turned round and my god i see it was richard mansfield say can you beat it richard mansfield in a prince albert coat and a top hat with his arm round janey davis like she was his own daughter 
and I give you my word he'd never seen her before that day. Well, I just sat there and gasped. Wouldn't you think that a man like Mansfield would be above being there at a little miserable two-cent funeral, with a girl nobody had ever heard of, too? I should think he'd have been ashamed of himself. If a man don't respect himself, who is going to respect him anyway? Well, that was queer enough. But when I see they didn't have no minister, I nearly died. And what do you think? When they had the coffin on the ground, side of the grave, I couldn't see that Janey was crying a bit. Mansfield took a little black book out of his pocket and stood up straight at the head of the coffin and begun to read. His voice was so loud and clear we could almost hear it from where we were. I was almost ashamed of the profession by that time. But then I always did think Mansfield was a good deal of a bluff. Then Dusty says to me, Glow, I ain't never seen Mansfield act. I'm going to sneak up near there and get a good look at him and hear him. This is where I get an orchestra seat free. Well, I let him go, and I waited there in the car. Well, Dusty walked up near the lot. I could see him standing there listening, and after a while he drew up nearer. When they begun to lower the coffin into the grave, Dusty come walking back slow. I called out to him to hurry, for I was terrible afraid Janey'd spot me rubbering. In that yellow coat, too. When he got a little nearer, I see the tears was just rolling down his cheeks. Dusty McIntyre was crying like a kid. Ain't that the limit? I asked him what in the world he was crying about, and he said it was something about his voice. Mansfield's voice. It got to him some way. I don't know. I guide him about it all the way to Luna Park, but somehow Dusty wa'n't like himself all day. That was in 1907. You know, Mansfield died about six months after that. In September it was. Well, I met Jane Davis at an agency the week after he died, and what do you think? She was all in black. When I said something to her about Mansfield, she broke right down and cried. Now what do you know about that? A girl who wouldn't put on mourning nor shed a tear for her own mother, had the nerve to rig out in black for the swellest star in the business. I call her a thoroughbred snob. Fenton looked at the girl now with a revulsion of feeling. She no longer amused him, and Miss Diamond seemed less beautiful. Already he had stayed too long, and yet his object had not been accomplished. Miss Diamond yawned again. Say, Millie, I gotta get home, she said. Let's go. At that, Millie called the waiter hovering near and asked for the check. He handed it to her. Fenton made a feeble protest, but she waved it aside and tossed him a gold-linked purse across the tablecloth. Fenton glanced at the bill, found it was nine-forty, and took out a crisp new ten-dollar bill. The waiter fled. There would be sixty cents change, thought Fenton. Part of that he must have, and make his escape. He watched the waiter to the cashier's desk and saw him returning. He calculated the time to a second, and just as the man was within six feet of him, he called out, pointing to the door. Gosh, there's your friend back already. The girls turned and gazed. Fenton took the dime from the proffered plate, slipped it into his pocket, and handed Millie her purse. It was a victory. The waiter stood and stared contemptuously. What did Fenton care? Not a whit now to get away. The cloakroom boy brought him his hat, and as he waited for a tip, Fenton eagerly collogued the blonde. The three walked to the hotel lobby. 
obsequious head waiters gazed at them in admiration a buzz went through the corridor when fenton alias whack harrison appeared he was the hero of the place he glanced at the clock both hands stood at eleven he must hurry say you can take us home if you want whack millie's fond eyes shot sparks at him all right he said just wait till i get some cigarettes he turned walked to the cigar counter and beyond once out of sight he ran for the side door end of chapter seven